A couple weeks ago, I was uh, leading the Faith Walk class, and uh, somebody asked a question, and uh, kind of the the best I remember the question was something like this, what has been uh, one of the most daring things that you've done as a follower of Jesus? And I kind of thought for a little bit, and then, you know, it could be a number of things, but the thing that came to mind was uh, the time when I, uh, many years ago, and I'd been a pastor for 10 years, and I really believed that God was calling me to start a new church someday. And I decided that uh, it would be really great I could go back to seminary for another year and really focus on things that would help me to do that. Um, and anyway, I, I, so I applied and I got accepted into a, a program uh, for, for another year of seminary. And I, and I was told that I qualified for a full tuition scholarship. And then so, and the United, and so the Nebraska United Methodist Conference approved for me to take a year off from being a pastor. So anyway, a few months before we were going to leave, I, I got a call from the seminary department head informing me that, yes, yes, I did qualify for a full tuition scholarship, but the department that I would be in, and just for the upcoming year, they were out of scholarship money. So now what do I do? And I prayed, okay, Lord, I don't know whether we should go or not. I need you to give me a sign. You ever done that? Lord, give me a sign, you know, something big that I know whether we should go or not. Because, you know, I was at a phase in our lives. We had two young kids. I mean, I really couldn't afford to be reckless. And so I, I, I kind of waiting around, waiting for weeks, waiting for this sign, and nothing's really coming, and I'm, you know, the, the clock is ticking, and I remember we lived in this small town. I remember walking back, beautiful, bright spring morning, and I was walking back from the, from the post office to the church, and it just kind of hit me. I said, I don't think God's going to give me a sign. Huh. And then another thing hit me, and that is I realized that if, if we don't go, I'll always regret it. I'll always look back. And say, why did I, why did I, why was I too afraid to go? It was like God was saying to me, will you trust me even without a sign? And so Trisha and I made the decision to go and somehow, the short version is that God took care of us, God provided. So today we're considering uh, the question, Where will we put our trust? Nearly four years ago, um, my youngest brother, Dan, was about to be ordained into the uh, Wesleyan Church denomination, and he was allowed to invite a pastor to join in that moment of laying hands on him and offer a prayer for him in that, and he asked me. I mean, I still look back, and it was one of the things I'm, I was most honored in my lifetime to be able to do. So there in this, this uh, church building of this Wesleyan church in Rapid City, South Dakota, uh, there was a, the time was for Dan to come forward, and he came and he knelt down, and there were a number of us who, who laid hands on him, and one of the people there, they, they said those words of ordination over him, and then it was my turn to pray while we still had our hands on him. And I want to just share a a small slice of that prayer. But I prayed, 
May his testimony be bold. May his proclamation be fruitful. May his leadership be visionary. Give him wisdom to rightly handle your word. Give him holy fire to make disciples. And as I look back on it now, I think that that prayer was a way of saying, God, we trust that Dan's calling is from you and that you're going to see him through and be faithful as he fulfills this calling. Where will we put our trust? Let's say it together, shall we? Where will we put our trust? Now, I'm guessing that not many of you spend a lot of time reading the book of 2 Chronicles in the Bible. Am I right? Me neither. <laughs> but there's some good stuff in there. There's some good stuff in there. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 um, tells about when Jehoshaphat was, was king of Judah. So if any of you uh, soon-to-be parents want to name your child Jehoshaphat, that's a great choice. And anyway, he, was, he came on a century after uh, King David. Jehoshaphat was King David's great-great-great-great-grandson. In the 9th century B.C., three nations decided to join forces to invade and attack Judah. And with their combined strength, they knew that Judah's army would be no match for them. So, when the people of Judah found out, what would they do? Where would, be, where would they put their trust? Jehoshaphat calls for all the people of his country, Judah, to meet him there in the capital city of Jerusalem and proclaims a time of fasting, which is a kind of a way of intensifying their prayers. And they call upon the Lord. And I can imagine the, the huge crowds of people gathered in the temple courtyard, uh, according, each according to their tribes, and with the banners of each tribe kind of being held high, and they could gather around them. And, and it wasn't just the army. This was everybody. Men and women and, and, and even the children were, were there. And they all listen as Jehoshaphat leads them in prayer. And Jehoshaphat prays, Lord Yahweh, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in the heavens? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. And then as Jehoshaphat continues to pray, he recalls how the Lord had promised this land to their forefather Abraham and how they had, they had built a temple there in Jerusalem to honor the name of Yahweh and how they believed that in times of trouble they could come to the temple and cry out to the Lord and he would save them. And then the king laid out before God their current predicament. Three nations have come together to destroy them and to drive them out. And Jehoshaphat prayed, Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. And then he adds something in his prayer that I find shocking. He says, We do not know what to do. What shocks me is that in his prayer, he admits this in front of his people. You know, when I listen to the presidential candidates, they seem to have an answer for everything. 
right? How often do we hear a national leader say, I don't know what to do about this? Never. Then Jehoshaphat, he ends his prayer by saying, but our eyes are on you. And just then, God begins to answer that prayer. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon a man from the tribe of Levi, Levi by the name of Jehaziel. Uh, and, and he prophesies. He says, listen, King uh, Jehoshaphat and, and all who live in, Ju- in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. And Jehaziel tells the king and the people that, yes, they will have to face their enemies, but God will win the battle. Next morning, the soldiers of Judah set out. They leave Jerusalem, set out to meet their foes. And when they arrive at the battlefield, all they see are dead bodies. The three armies had betrayed each other and killed one another. King Jehoshaphat then leads his army back home rejoicing, and the people pull out their harps and and lyres and trumpets, and they're all singing praises to God. Now, 2 Chronicles 20 and Psalm 20 aren't necessarily tied, but I would believe that that, uh, a time like 2 Chronicles 20 with Jehoshaphat would be the perfect time for Psalm 20. Okay, so let's open our Bibles to Psalm 20. Uh, if you're using a pew Bible, it's in there, 546. And uh, by the way, one of the things we love to do is give away Bibles. So if you need one, you need one at home to read uh, after worship. Kind of head your way across the foyer. You'll see the Connection Center along the wall there next to the elevator. A little rack says free Bibles. Take one, you know, help yourself, happy reading. Okay. Now, Psalm 20 is considered a royal psalm because it features the king. And we can imagine all the people gathered in the temple courtyard as they speak blessings over the king who prepares to lead them into battle. Now, we're going to walk through this this psalm verse by verse, and I hope you'll follow along with me. Verse 1 says, May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of of God, of the God of Jacob, protects you. So we know from this that this is a psalm for times of trouble. It's a psalm for a day of distress, like when three armies are coming to attack you. And when it says the name of God, well, that refers to God, the person of God, but especially God's character and God's promises. And in verse 1, we also see the word answer. You see that there? which is going to be used two more times in this psalm. Uh, It's trusting that when we call on God, He will answer. I'm guessing as I look out at all of you here that, that most of you, most of us pray every day or nearly every day. Why? Because we believe God hears us. And we believe that God will answer. And, of course, as you, as you mature in prayer, you kind of learn about how God does this. And, and we know that sometimes we, we pray, we have to keep trusting, and we have to keep waiting. And those answers don't always come like we hope, like I didn't get the sign that I was looking for. 
But we also know that if we don't ask, we don't see those answers. Verse 2. Praise a second blessing over the king. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. Now, sanctuary, Zion, they mean here, they mean the same thing. They mean the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, of course, we know that God, and they knew too, God is everywhere. But the temple was unique. The temple was where heaven and earth overlapped. And it was the focus of the presence of God upon the earth. And they're saying that, that we believe and we trust that, that God is with us and helps us and supports us. And then verse 3 reminds us that before setting out for battle, uh, it was customary that a king would make sacrifices to the Lord. Livestock, wine, grain, you know, burn that on the altar. Uh, and it shows, it was a way of showing the king's obedience and the king's trust in God. So the people then bless him by saying in verse 3, May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. And I want you to know that whatever crisis you're facing, whatever crisis you're going to face in the future, God's not going to forget the times that you have trusted him. God's not going to forget the times when you have put your faith on the line and you have even sacrificed for that. And it's not that you're buying God's favor for a future time, but it's you, God knows that you are his. God knows. And verse 4 tells us that God is delighted to give the king victory uh, the people are praying, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. And then we come to verse 5. I really love verse 5. It's a powerful statement of trust. Why? Because it celebrates the victory before the battle begins. You know, I think that's the way I want to be. I want to be able to rise up from my prayer time with such a trust in God that I can celebrate the outcome, I can celebrate the victory before the battle begins. Verse 5 says, May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. So look at these people. They haven't even left Jerusalem yet. And they're already planning their victory celebration for when they get back. Last August, a longtime friend of ours lost her 53-year-old husband in a car accident. He was killed. And um, I can hardly imagine the depth of her grief over these last six months and how hard it has been. And I know that she has leaned on the Lord and she has developed some great friendships with other people who have gone through similar losses and they can share their grief together like people, like in our grief share classes. Anyway, the, the visitation that the, and funeral for her husband was a, a full month or more after his death. And, and part of that was because she was also injured in the accident and had been hospitalized. And so at the funeral home, uh, Trish and I went to the visitation and we waited in line, what, an hour at least, uh, to see her. And when we finally got up to where she was, 
she said something that has stuck in my heart ever since. She said, God's got this. I mean, I, I didn't know how to take it. God's got this. Blew me away. I mean, she'd already been a month out from, from her husband's death, and so she had a little bit of perspective on it, and somehow she was able, she was looking forward. She was trusting God for the victory, trusting God for the outcome, even while she was in the very beginning of the battle. Uh, and then verse 5 gives one more blessing for the king. It says, may the Lord grant all your requests. So the king uh, bears a special responsibility to pray for his people. And that's why Jehoshaphat does that. He, he gathers all the people together and he leads them in prayer as their enemies are approaching. And one thing you might notice when, you, when you're reading the Psalms, as we have been the last many weeks here, is that whoever's talking and whoever they're talking to can change without notice, right? And that gets kind of weird, doesn't it? As you read the Psalms, who's talking now? Who are they talking to? And so we have to pay attention to the clues. Uh, in English, you, you can't always tell this, but in the first five verses, the you, that is the person that they are blessing, is singular. It's one person. And, and we find out later in the psalm that this one person is the king. And we know that the, the blessings are spoken by a group of people because in verse 5 it says, We, may we shout for joy. So these five verses represent the people blessing the king. And then suddenly in verse 6, it switches. Now the speaker is singular. Now this I know. And the best way to read verse 6 is that now the king is speaking. After receiving those blessings spoken over to him by the people, the king responds with confidence. Now this I know. What does the king know? The Lord gives victory to his anointed, which is the king. And then we see the word answer again. God answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Now, a less trusting person might say, Jehoshaphat, what good is praying going to do you right now? These enemies, this, these three armies, they're on your doorstep. They're right around the corner. You need a strategy. You need to go and, and make allies out of Egypt and Philistine. Yeah, you might have to bow down to their gods, but you need them to survive. But the king believes that God will answer. The king believes that the word that came through Jehaziel is the word of the Lord for them. And the king trusts that God keeps his promise. And the king uh, trusts that God is bigger than his problems. And then we come to verse 7. Verse 7, to me, is the, is the heartbeat of this psalm. And I can imagine the army of Judah shouting this back to the king, and I'm going to ask you all to say it with me, right? Verse 7, loud and strong. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Chariots, horses. They recall the time a few centuries earlier when God brought their ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. 
Remember that story, how the wind blew all night, blew the waters back, and their ancestors crossed through on dry ground. But when the Egyptian army followed with their horses and chariots, they broke through the thin crust of, of dry ground. They got mired in the mud, and all the waters came crashing upon them and washed them away. Chariots and horses, they were the ultimate in warfare technology in that day. They were the tanks and the fighter jets. But God's people learned, do not put your trust in those weapons of war. Do not put your trust in the wealth and the technology. Put your trust in the name and the character and the promises of God. You know, I'm like a lot of you. I have a world of information I can pull out of my pocket. Smartphone is the ultimate in personal technological power. I mean, I like it. I, I, can, I, can, I can answer any question. The GPS can give, my, give me turn-by-turn -turn directions to anywhere. The thing it can't tell me is what my destination needs to be. This technology cannot tell me what it really means to be human. Let's ask the question again. Will you say it with me? Where will we put our trust? Some trust in Siri and some in Google, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Last Sunday I was on vacation and Trish and I worshiped at our son's church, and one of their pastors, Tyler Zach, uh, talked about the difference between being a worrier and a warrior. I love this. Prayer is an act of, of courage and hope and trust, and by calling on God, we become warriors of faith. Or not. We can abandon hope and trust and sink into the mire and mud of worry. When crisis comes, where will you put your trust? Will you be a worrier or a warrior? With three armies marching toward Jerusalem, King Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah, they, they just could have given up on God. They, they, they just could have worried themselves sick and worried themselves into a panic. and said, we, we don't have the numbers. They, they have a vast army. Uh, we don't have the, their, the technological advantage. But here's what they did have. They had the promises of God. They had the faithfulness of God. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And again, before the battle begins, the people picture the victory. The enemies who put their trust in chariots and horses, verse 8, verse 8 says, they, they are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to rise up and stand firm? And then the psalm ends with a final humble request. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. 
Now, I'm not going to say that trusting God is easy. I'm not going to say that trusting God is simple. I'm not going to say that trusting God fixes everything right away. I have, I have dealt with anxiety all my life. Sometimes it feels like a heavy chain around my neck. And it gets, and it gets heavy, it gets burdensome sometimes. And I find that in order to keep going, I have to keep reaching out and I have to keep trusting God, calling on God and trusting God over and over and over again, day by day, sometimes moment by moment. And now, as I look back at it from all these decades, I'm beginning to see that that this heavy chain around my neck, God has used it to make me strong. God has used it to help me trust him more because I have to. Where will you put your trust? Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we're just trying to, to muddle our way through our lives. We don't know what to do next. We sure don't know what the future holds, and we're, we're afraid, we're anxious. Sometimes we want to just try to control everything the best we can, and yet we know how useless that can be. And so, Lord, we are calling upon you. We're called upon your name, your character, your promises, and putting our trust in you. And, Lord, we ask that you will, you will meet us where we are. Lord, whether you defeat our enemies or you give us the courage to face them or whether we just have to walk around them or live through it, Lord, we are counting upon you. And, Lord, I pray that you'll help this church to, as, as a people together, that we will tr- put our trust in you, that we'll not put our trust in, in our, our bank accounts or the building, but that our trust will be in you. And, Lord, I pray that you'll help each one of us as individuals to, to lean into to that trust in you and so that we can encourage one another and support one another and, and become that kind of community where uh, trusting in you is, is becomes more, more powerful, more beautiful, more meaningful every day. That we are encouraged by each, each other's stories of trust. And so, Lord, we lay all this at your feet. We're counting on you. Uh, you are good. You are faithful. You are strong. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.